It's a great honor uh, to be here today. Uh, I know almost nothing about the Middle East, uh, but I've been working on uh, East Asia since 1958. In 1958, uh, I went to Japan, and then it took off and uh, succeeded. And then I visited the Four Little Dragons, and they took off and succeeded. And then I visited China, and they took off and succeeded. So one of my stockbroker friends says, which country are you going to study next? Uh, but uh, I take no credit for any of the things, but it, I've had the unusual opportunity of seeing all these countries as they were taking off. The basic uh, message I have uh, about these countries is that compared to England and the United States, where we developed from within and had uh, progress from new inventions and developed gradually, the late developers have studied what went on and then selectively introduced uh, what they uh, could do. I cannot trace in half an hour uh, my entire course that I used to give on uh, Industrial East Asia, but I, I will try to pick the critical changes where I think what the, the critical time was when they made the changes that enabled them to take off. Uh, and I will talk mostly about the post-World uh, War II period, but there was one country that was a late developer already modernizing uh, before World War II, and that, of course, uh, was Japan. And to me, the critical time when Japan took off uh, was the Iwakura mission uh, from December 1871 to 1873. You'll pardon me if I read the text. I know I have little time and I want to be as precise as I could. In 1860, uh, the Japanese had sent a brief mission to the United States and one to Europe in, eight, in, 19, in 1862. But these were small missions, not nearly as con consequential as the Evil Corps mission. Shortly after Emperor Meiji came to power in 1867, Japanese leaders began to select a group of promising young officials to go abroad to learn about developments around the world. When Commodore Perry forced Japan to open, Japanese leaders had been frightened by the West, but by 1867, when Emperor Meiji came to the throne, they decided they would study the West, embrace the modernization process, and Emperor Meiji was only eight, uh, 14 years old when he came to power, but senior officials used to uh, govern the process. The organizers of the Iwakura mission hoped to pave the way for the end of the unequal treaties, but the main purpose was to study all the major aspects of modern Western societies so that Japan could select which uh, way to go about the course of modernization. After visiting various cities in the United States, they visited European countries, England, France, Russia, Belgium, Russia, Germany, Bavaria, Prussia, Denmark, Sweden, Austria, Italy, and Switzerland. On the return, they stopped in Egypt, Aden, uh, Ceylon, Singapore, Vietnam, Hong Kong, and Shanghai. The Japanese placed at the head of the mission Iwakura Tomomi, a nobleman who had been chamberlain to Emperor Meiji's father, Emperor Komei, and who had cooperated with the Meiji Restoration. He provided the status to lead a delegation of young people. The young people were selected because they were considered promising for playing a major role in forming uh, the Meiji government and guiding the work of governmental organization to develop modern industry, modern military. 
Advanced teams prepared the way for the mission to meet the rulers of various countries, to receive their advice, to visit military facilities, government offices, ports, railways, uh, shipyards, industrial sites, mines, scientific research centers, educational institutions. And after they returned, many people in the mission were in fact placed in the key positions in the government and other institutions. By traveling together, having time on the boat between visiting countries, the delegation had a chance to coordinate their impressions, reach a consensus about many of the things that needed to be done that would enable them to work together after they returned. They also developed priorities for locations in the various countries where young people selected for future positions would go and get further training. In the years after the group returned, the rapporteur of the Iwakura mission, Kumi Kunitake, uh, spent several years writing up the report of their observations and the materials that they had collected as a guide for developing institutions to implement what they learned. The report helped form the basis for the work of building the government, guiding structural changes to be made in the years following. And then that was the point for, starting point for drafting the Kogyo Iken, Opinions on Promoting Industry, a 30-volume work commissioned by the Ministry of Agriculture and Commerce completed in 1884 for guiding the development of Japanese industry. To be sure, there were many changes from these basic documents. There were still many disagreements, but the Iwakura Mission, the diary of the Iwakura Mission, the opinions on promoting industry, provided for the next two decades following the mission a well-rounded structure for creating the constitution, introducing basic changes that transformed Japan and set it on the path of becoming the first industrialized Asia, nation in Asia. <clears throat> now I'll skip to the post-war period and again start with Japan, which was of course the first uh, East Asian industrialized uh, country after World War II. Because of the destruction of World War II, they really had to start again. And the American-led occupation uh, that lasted from 45 to 52 set Japan on a very different course from the one they had taken uh, before defeat in 45. The emperor had to acknowledge he was no longer sacred. Japan was not permitted to have a military. Its large economic combines that supported military efforts were broken apart. Democratic elections were used to select officials. And therefore, it was set on a very different uh, path. After the occupation in 1952, Japanese political and economic leaders had intense discussions about what structure and policies were appropriate for the new post-war period. If I had to say what was a key turning point in Japan after World War II, I would say it's from 1952 to 1955. Because during this period, there were intense discussions about which course uh, the Japan should take. And then in 1955, the basic institutional structure for the modernization gelled and came together. In the spring of 1955, there were two socialist parties that came together and formed a united socialist party. So the business community was very frightened that they would be overtaken and led by socialists. And so they decided that they would bankroll the two uh, more uh, conservative parties, the Liberal Party and the Democratic Party. And so they offered to finance these two parties into a single political party, the Liberal Democratic Party, which has dominated Japan ever since with the support of the business community 
Kate Unrin was at the head of the uh, business community, and they provided uh, cooperation and support for the basic political structure which has existed ever since. The uh, political party of uh, the Liberal Democratic Party decided also they had to uh, give some room for labor. They wanted to train young people to uh, be, uh, get new lessons, and they felt that if they were too tough on the labor, uh, they would not get the cooperation for learning, and they would not get the cooperation, would have strikes. And so each company then tried to have uh, a program for training the young people, and they had each spring uh, a labor struggle when they tried to set a pattern of labor wage increases, first in the biggest companies, and that served as a model for many of the smaller companies follow, following in the same place. Until 1952, they didn't have an economic planning agency, but in, in 1955, when they came together, they set up an economic planning agency which coordinated work in the government. The strategy for the bureaucracy in the government was to lay down basic plans, and not to have socialist precise planning, but to work with the various companies in key sectors and try to find out what they needed together that would help them be more competitive in the world stage. It tried, for example, to get the uh, auto companies to merge so that they would have bigger auto companies, but when one or two companies did not cooperate and uh, show that they could resist, they were allowed to do so. So it was not a dictatorial program, but it was a program of a ministry, the planning agency working with the various other departments of the government to raise the question of what they could do to support business, and they therefore uh, had the cooperation of the various uh, companies, and they also worked so that uh, they gave a share of the profits to labor so that they would not have the radical strikes that they feared uh, in the immediate aftermath of World War II. <clears throat> now, so the Japanese call this the 1955 system. So it had a political structure, the Democratic Party, it had the support of the businesses, it had key economic agencies that provided the direction, but did not give orders, and tried to work with the companies to see what they could do to set up re joint research projects, uh, to help them get into key markets abroad, but the uh, pressure and the dynamism came from the individual companies. Now let me switch to Taiwan. Uh, the Taiwan, I, will, I believe the key turning point was in 1960. And what came together in, in 1960 was a combination of U United States aid, Guomindang technocrats, and local small business. By 1960, after mainland China's shelling to Taiwan in 1958, there was widespread recognition that Chiang Kai-shek could not succeed in his goal to retake mainland. Until that time, there was still very uh, much hope within Chiang Kai-shek and his uh, associates from the Guomindang that they had a chance of retaking the mainland. That was his clear goal. But with the support of US government programs, when it became clear after the shelling of Taiwan in 1958 that they had no hope of retaking the mainland in a realistic uh, possibility, 
they decided they would begin to work together to improve the economy of Japan, uh, of Taiwan. And thanks to the contributions of Japan during the occupation of Taiwan from 1895 to 1945, Taiwan already had a level of infrastructure uh, higher than mainland China. Uh, ever since 1898, when Japan sent to Taiwan a top civilian administrator, an enlightened physician, Goto Shinpei, who introduced a modern uh, public uh, health system. He and his successors in Taiwan also built a, a transport and communications infrastructure, a modern educational system that provided a basis that the Kuomintang could work with uh, at once they decided that their main efforts were not in trying to retake the mainland, but in building up uh, Taiwan. So in the early years, uh, after 1949, Chiang Kai-shek uh, was still pushing so hard for retaking the mainland uh, that they were not really doing that much to build up Taiwan. But after that, in 1960, that critical turning point, after they realized they had no chance of taking the mainland, then they were concentrating on building up what was going on in Taiwan. In order to promote the economy, Chiang Kai-shek then allowed some able technocrats to take the lead in guiding policy, particularly CYN, a trained engineer who had served in World War II as the director of Chinese Foreign Trade Office in uh, New York. And after 1963, when Yin died, Li Guodeng, KT Lee, became the leading technocrat. During the Japanese occupation of China during World War II, those two people, Yin and Li, had been part of China's National Resources Commission, which was really quite an elite, well-trained, uh, technocratic uh, group of people who really thought of national planning. So after 1960, they were given the leeway uh, to develop uh, the local economy. But the transformation of the Taiwan economy was not only from certain large industries, Taiwan shipbuilding and Taiwan steel, but also came from tiny businesses. And there, the key uh, factor was Japanese companies, because as Japan began to take off uh, in the 1960s, its wages were beginning to rise. They wanted to transfer abroad some industrial facilities that, where they could get cheaper wages. And because they had had such close relations with people in Taiwan uh, during their occupation, there were many people in, in Taiwan who had worked with the Japanese and could work well with them. So a very important uh, part of the Taiwan takeoff came from those small businesses that had existed before uh, uh, World War II and that with Japanese cooperation as in textiles and other light industries, these very small companies uh, could, with Japanese support, and contacts uh, pass on the technology from Japan to Taiwan so that those small businesses. Therefore, the, the Taiwan takeoff, which occurred after 1960, at that critical moment when they decided they were not going to invade the mainland, really came uh, from those people, the combination of uh, Taiwan steel, uh, Taiwan shipbuilding, which had high-level engineers trained at MIT and elsewhere, and the combination of those uh, creative, uh, tiny businessmen uh, who began to take off in cooperation with Japanese companies. Now let me switch to South Korea. 
The key turning point, I believe, was Pak Chung-hee's taking power in 1961. And this was a very different kind of modernization. It was military-led with Japanese guidance and the cooperation of large Jap uh, Chinese, uh, uh, Korean uh, economic institutions, that, which we know today as the Jaipal. Sigmund Rhee, who had been the leader in, in uh, uh, South Korea before, had an MA from my institution, Harvard University, in 1908, PhD from Princeton. He had remained uh, abroad 40 years and knew a great deal about international law, and he had worked very hard to try to uh, outlaw, uh, overcome Japanese occupation, provide international pressure, international legal institutions that would overcome uh, Japanese occupations. So he was a trained lawyer. He was familiar with international institutions, but he had very little idea about what it took to build a country, very little experience. And even though the Americans were happy to work with him, he was not the plan, uh, the person to build uh, South Korea. Uh, when Pak Chung-hee, the general, uh, conducted a coup, needless to say, Americans and people around the world were very unhappy that the military was taking over. They thought this was uh, a very uh, terrible thing. And yet, as objective scholars trying to understand the transformation of South Korea, we have to admit that it was Pak Chung-hee uh, who really led, after this military transformation, uh, the transformation of South Korea and provided the turning point of South Korea beginning to take off. <clears throat> In May 1961, led, he led some 5,000 troops, a small group of military academy classmates as leaders. It was a bloodless coup that established the military government. He was hated by Korean intellectuals, by liberal politicians, by many American officials who criticized his disregard for human rights. He used his CIA director to control, sometimes to uh, do away with opposition. To control the student demonstrations, he built a new campus for Seoul National University, away from the center of government, put a wall around it, that could be closed in time of any kind of student demonstrations. He, pursued, he pushed through his own constitutional uh, government in December 1963 and 1972, ran through the Yushin Constitution, allowed him to stay in power indefinitely. He reign, remained in power for 18 years until the 1979 when he was shot by his own director of intelligence. When he came to power, the North Korean economy was much more industrialized than the South because the Japanese had taken advantage of the Yalu River water power to develop a chemical industry in North Korea, which was used for fertilizer, but also used for building up uh, ammunition. Uh, and therefore, they had a much more developed chemical industry. And the South, uh, particularly Chola province, was basically agriculture uh, providing uh, for the uh, Japanese-occupied Korea. But so when Pak Chung-hee came to power, the North Korean economy was actually superior to, to the South Korean economy. It had more industry, and its economy was doing a little bit better. But uh, Pak Chung-hee uh, drew upon the uh, 
cooperation with Japan much more than uh, cooperation with the United States. He, after all, had been a, 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 a military officer in the Japanese-led Manchurian Army, and therefore uh, was very familiar with many Japanese friends who, at the same time that they were beginning to pass on industry to Taiwan, were also beginning to pass on industry to South Korea. And the people who led the industrial development in South Korea under Park Chung-hee were also Japanese-educated uh, people who had contacts with Japanese industry. And therefore, the language of business uh, for those big people leaders uh, was uh, Japanese. And even though the South Koreans had a very ambivalent relations with Japan, you had a 1919 uh, movement to try to overtake, uh, to get more freedom for Korea. And as you know now, there are still many tensions left over from Japanese occupation within uh, South Korea and tensions between South Korea and Japan. There was still a very sizable group of Koreans who knew Japanese language, who had worked in Japanese companies under Japanese leadership in the pre-war period, and who took over higher positions uh, after uh, World War II. <clears throat> and uh, Park Chung-hee had received high-level American military training, knew about technology, but the key cooperation was with the, the Japanese, and he also supported entrepreneurs. Uh, the way he operated was if some uh, entrepreneur was very successful and worked very hard in one sector, he allowed them to open up another sector. So uh, you have Hyundai, Daewoo, and other what we call a jaibol, these large uh, uh, combines, which were the key strategy was to build a, a core uh, of and with, when, when some, one person proved very entrepreneurial and knew how to make things happen, he let them enter other sectors. So you therefore, and uh, somebody uh, like the founder of Hyundai or the founder of some of the uh, Samsung and other, were basically Japanese educated people who could work in their sectors and were allowed to move into a variety of different kind of companies. Uh, a lot of small Jap uh, Korean businesses were not very happy that the government supported those large businesses, but it worked. And in the sense that those companies grew, they were quite successful, and we now have some uh, very large Korean uh, companies, although some companies like Daewoo have not uh, done well. Uh, the Hyundai, Samsung, and others that were helped by Park Chung-hee uh, have continued afterward. And even though uh, South Korea has had uh, a very bad record of what happens to former presidents, uh, the former presidents uh, have uh, often been thrown into jail. Uh, there were a lot of uh, military techniques that uh, did not have full democratic support. Uh, if you try to look at it objectively, I think you have to admit that the breakthroughs and the success was because of a general who cooperated with the Japanese, uh, who was very tough in insisting on various kind of depth uh, uh, programs, and uh, yet uh, succeeded uh, very well by making Korea a very successful uh, modern country, following very much from what they learned from Japan.
now let me say a few words about Singapore. I, mean, I do this with some uh, diffidence because uh, there's so many people here who know the situation much better than I. But to me, the key turning point in uh, uh, Singapore was in May 1959, when the People's Action Party, led by Lee Kuan Yew, who was then only 35 years old, and also by Gokung Sfi, uh, were elected in Singapore. Uh, they and their close associates have been selected for academic excellence to study in England, and their fellow students had joined in the anti-colonial movement. They were engaged struggle in struggles against communist forces in Southeast Asia. They were very uh, talented, brilliant people. They came to power after struggles. They had a very good sense of what was needed, and yet because of their very broad gauge training in England, they had a very good sense of what it took uh, to build a modern industrial and modern economic structure. And they uh, were intellectuals of, you might call, super uh, bright uh, intellectuals who worked very well together in trying to devise a uh, program for, uh, for Singapore. One of the key decisions that uh, Li Guan Yu made was the local Chinese businessmen did not have the skills necessary to become an international uh, economic uh, strong uh, place. And he did not have the kind of connections with Japan that South Korea and Taiwan had had. Uh, but he invited multinationals to come here because he felt multinationals could provide the skills uh, that were necessary uh, for building up a good workforce. They could also help supply foreign markets for the goods produced in uh, Singapore. So it was a strategy of inviting select multinationals, giving them what they needed in order to operate. He also decided that they needed uh, very strong training programs, uh, and he tried to develop uh, companies, as in Japan, where people stayed in the company a long time, so that the young people entering the company would receive the training from their company, which was made it worth their while to train them because they knew they were, those employees were there for a long time. Now let me uh, skip to, to China, to Deng Xiaoping and the reform opening. To me, the critical turning point in China was in December 1978 at the third plenum when Deng Xiaoping uh, came to par, uh, power. I spent 10 years from 2000 to 2010 studying Deng Xiaoping. He was a remarkable man uh, who changed the, the political course. He inherited a country that was torn by poverty, uh, torn by the Cultural Revolution where people were divided, and yet he managed politically uh, in a very uh, brilliant way. Uh, if he had said, let's have private markets, let's have uh, capitalism, uh, the, all the supporters of Mao would not have followed him. But he said Mao was such a wonderful leader, we were lucky to have him, but in a, and we'll put his a picture on Tiananmen Square to remain there. Uh, and 70% of the things he did were wonderful. If I did 70% good, I would be so happy. Uh, but in his later days, Mao made some mistakes. In terms of the rural areas, he wanted to get rid of the communes. But he, if he had said, let's get rid of communes, he could have probably had a revolt. What he said was, there are people starving in various places. 
And some places like Anhui, he said, they let the local people try to find a way so they can avoid starvation. Well, some of them did what they, they allowed the household to do individual farming, and it was not called private uh, farming, it was called uh, uh, contracting down to the household. So officially there was still a larger socialist unit, but in fact the household became the key unit. And in the city, instead of saying, let there be uh, bourgeois capitalism, if he had said that, the place would have fallen apart. What he said was, uh, let's allow uh, the people who've come back to the uh, cities from the countryside who are now in danger of calling, causing great social unrest, if they want to start a little uh, enterprise on their own, and we have to allow that, otherwise we're going to have terrible social unrest. So he provided the political base uh, so to make really a fundamental change. And he allowed in all kinds of foreign advisors, uh, some from the World Bank who came from all kinds of places, to get the latest technology and he sent people abroad to learn. So we had the beginning of a, of a Chinese uh, miracle uh, that has followed. So in short, uh, we have a, a, a wide variety of uh, experiences in East Asia. And I've tried to provide some of the key turning points that I thought made possible in each country somewhat a different pattern. But what I find common in all these patterns is that there were a group of people who provided stability in the country over a number of years. They looked abroad, they studied very carefully. They tried to, there were technocrats who studied abroad and then tried to think what was an appropriate pattern for their own country. And then to give entrepreneurs and bureaucrats the leverage to work out plans for the local area, link up to the international economy, and then provide a lot of freedom to the local people to compete as much as they could and to carry on peaceful relations with other countries that made it possible. So that's my two cents on East Asian modernization. Thank you very much.